we understand that we're dealing with very serious urban issues and struggles, and it's going to take more than just architects and designers to solve those problems. Welcome to Architect Sessions One to One. I'm Amelia Taylor Hochberg, and this week, February 15th, 2016, I speak with Garrett Jacobs, the Chief Facilitating Officer of the Veritable Phoenix Rising from the Ashes of Architecture for Humanity, known as the Chapter Network. When Architecture for Humanity went bankrupt last year and shut down its formal executive functions, many affiliated chapters continued business as usual, operating independently with volunteer coalitions as they had always done. So to rally those troops and continue the organization's mission of humanitarian and sustainable development, the Chapter Network was formed, and Garrett Jacobs, formerly an outreach coordinator for Architecture for Humanity, became its organizing leader. As an architect trained literally in the midst of Hurricane Katrina, and with past experience organizing for Code for America, Jacobs has big plans for the newfangled network. We spoke about how to continue Architecture for Humanity's legacy without making its same mistakes, and how to create a sustainable organization on a shoestring. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So I wanted to start out by asking you, going from Architecture for Humanity into this chapter network, what of Architecture for Humanity's bare bones will you be retaining, if any, into the new chapter network? How is the transition taking the old structure and adapting it into a new one? Well, it's really highlighting the people and you know the people that uh, kind of jumped on board with Architecture for Humanity's mission. And you know, we're delivering their services to marginalized communities locally uh, for the past 10 years. So the only reason that this is continuing is because there are people that are still doing the work and we're never really, you know, faltered by the closure of the headquarters. And so the structure of the organization will be completely different. So there isn't much that we're taking from that because, you know, we kind of identified that the strength is in the people and it's in local designers doing work for their local communities and creating communities amongst themselves to really just have that space to kind of maybe challenge the status quo. And so the only reason this this new iteration exists is because the people are still there. And so the new structure of the organization is just focused around supporting them to do their local work. So, you know, the new kind of umbrella organization will not execute projects, and that's going to be a huge difference from the past organization. So will this mean that future projects will only be located in areas that have chapter network bodies acting? Correct. Well, some, some we're not going to be too uh, kind of top down with what we tell the chapters they can and can't do. Rather, trying to be grassroots and surface the best practices of chapters. So some of them do like to do international projects. So if they have kind of a local brick and mortar organization, for example, in D.C. that uh, focuses on, you know, redevelopment in West Africa, then, you know, through that brick and mortar in D.C., then they can have a partnership and possibly do a project in West Africa. So kind of stuff like that. And it really depends on kind of where the resources and interest is from the chapters. But the large focus of kind of the resources that we're going to create as kind of collaborative group moving forward is going to be for local designers to do local work. So, yes, the projects will mostly be in the cities where there are chapters organized. And then so from those local chapters, are the people who make up those chapters mostly volunteers or how are they then managed within the umbrella structure? They are all volunteers currently. We have uh, only had a couple examples where chapters have uh, raised enough funds to 
have uh, temporary staff or a managing director that was paid for about six months. And so the idea is that we build up the capacity and give give the chapter volunteers resources so that they can eventually establish their chapters as local businesses defined by the needs that they've assessed locally. So right now, the volunteers kind of gather, and what we're putting in place is uh, a kind of regional structure. So we're currently just wrapping up elections for uh, regional representatives and, and deputy representatives for each of the seven regions around the globe. And so there'll be a little bit of oversight and guidance and support from those regional representatives and to the chapters themselves locally. And then those regional representatives will also gather together in a body to decide kind of uh, what the needs are at the chapter level and then make sure that those are expressed to the board of directors for the organization. And two of the members of the Regional Leaders Council will also sit on the official board of directors governing body for the organization. So would that mean that the final goal or the optimal end result of this would be for each chapter to be a self-sustaining business? Yes. And what was it that happened in Architecture for Humanity in in its previous iteration? Because a lot of the talk around the bankruptcy when it was announced last year was like this kind of irony set up between the case in San Francisco, the headquarters being in San Francisco, the case of how difficult it was for the foundation to continue receiving funding when, of course, all of these other products and just the startup industry found it so easy to find funding. And there was this a little bit of justified sourness on the part of many people who work in such humanitarian issues and nonprofits, how frustrating it is to retain funding and find a reliable source of funding to continue your practice. So until that point, until the chapter networks can be financially self-sustaining, how will the chapter network, and I know that name is going to eventually flit away and be replaced by a new one, but how will it get funding to get to that point of self-sustaining? Right. So right now we're effectively figuring that out. And in the past, the organization did charge dues for its members. And so it did generate a certain amount of revenue. But I don't want to start doing that yet because there's still, you know, we have to build up the new organization and define, you know, what programs we're going to build out to support the members doing the local work. And so it's going to take a little time. And, you know, I'm very aware of that and, you know, kind of patient with it because I know if if we're going to create programs that the chapters are going to execute, they have to be bought in into, you know, the process of, of creating those programs, right? That's that's what we believe in the work that we do on the ground is that when people are involved in the design of their environments, they, you know, want to sustain them, keep them safe and invest in them. So that's what we've been doing as a network as well thus far. And so, you know, the next six months, we have support from the Curry Stone Foundation, and they are kind of giving us the, the seed funding to, to launch. And so with that, I'm going to just roll into fundraising mode so that we can do needs assessment and capacity building for the next for the rest of the year effectively and then next year we can start talking about revenue streams such as dues models or charging for certain trainings and really get into that conversation a little bit more so that it'll have a self-sustaining revenue stream to operate a pretty lean network i mean to be honest it's not going to cost that much 
at the beginning because I'm, you know, right now I'm, I'm the only staff member and everyone else is voluntary and I don't have an office. You know, I bought my computer from the last organization I worked for for $250. You know, we're, we're <laughs> running a very lean ship right now. And, you know, there's a few, you know, web services that we're going to pay for constantly over the, you know, on a monthly basis. But aside from that, it's going to be pretty lean for the first year to really figure out what it is that we need to do that our, our, the users of the network really want. And so we're going to be a little patient with that this year. And then, you know, next year we'll start wrapping up some of the more revenue generating streams, as well as program definitions that'll be much easier to fundraise against. And have there been any shifts in kind of how the organization wants to target new volunteers and new members and appeal to, or, or try to get the word out that, you know, architecture for humanity as it was no longer exists, but it's core mission of humanitarian design is continuing onward through its volunteer force. If you would like to join our force, this is how you can do that. What are kind of the major recruiting strategies you see building out of this kind of new tone of architecture for humanity, both building on its past status in the industry, but also building up a new identity with this new uh, chapter network? Right. Well, I think with this one, rather, I think AFH was really good with appealing to the design community. And with this new organization, we want to be much more inclusive with the type of skill sets that we're bringing into the organization. And, you know, ranging from, you know, high school students to, you know, people that have master's degrees in sociology and urban planning and landscape architecture, you know, there's, there's always been kind of a fringe of, of much different types of professionals that, that show up to the organization, uh, that show up to chapter meetings, rather. But we really want to broaden that because we understand that we're dealing with very serious urban issues and struggles, and it's going to take more than just architects and designers to solve those problems. And so, you know, in the coming months, we're really going to figure out how to define those users and, and what people would want to contribute to you know, the investigation of, of what cities can become as inclusive environments. And again, so just really broadening the participants involved so that we can have much more well-rounded work. And so previously before, or kind of enmeshed in your roles at Architecture for Humanity, because previously you were the outreach coordinator and then worked at the at Code for America as the fellowship engagement lead. I'm wondering specifically if you could speak a little bit about your time at Code for America and what you might have taken from that to guide and help along your role at the chapter network. Oh, yeah. I mean, Code for America, it was like a, a graduate degree degree in technology and, and public policy. It was It was a fantastic year and a half that I spent there with an amazing group of people. And it really kind of opened my eyes up to the needs of cities and specifically working with municipal partners. Like you just really understand that, you know, we have, I think we have a conception of like seeing, you know, government as bureaucrats who are, you know, pushing paper and, you know, on the other side of some wall at the DMV. But it's really it's really different. You know, they're just people trying to make their cities a better place, you know, within the constraints that they have. And so taking those experiences and then combining them with the experience of like pulling permits, you know, for construction sets that I've had to do and understanding that all of those processes are design challenges in and of themselves. And we have to start seeing them as such and kind of approaching them as challenges and figuring out how we can make this whole system better for everyone that lives in cities and rural areas as well. So, I mean, Atomic Code for America was, you know, diving deep into local governance as well as 
working with a bunch of people who really knew how to strategize and get stuff done quickly, you know, understood the importance of partnerships and, you know, how to bring funding into uh, into specific projects and kind of really how to how to strategize on what to focus on first, um, you know, in some of their programs. And I really, really appreciated that. So I wouldn't feel prepared to do what I'm doing with the Chapter Network now had I not been at Code for America, had I not left the architectural profession in a sense and gotten a much wider view of some other ways of solving problems. You know, like in technology, focusing on user needs, you know, testing things in light, nimble ways to understand that, you know, people do want this service and all you needed to do was create a little Google form and get them involved. You know, there's very small iterative ways that you can test things. And I think that that's an approach that I'm excited to bring to the chapter network and and to kind of volunteerism within the design space in general, as well as a little bit of watching Code for America's Brigade program evolve over the past year and a half, which is their kind of volunteer network. So uh, taking a lot of experience in that world as well. Yeah. So maybe speak a little bit about that as well. Like what are some of the potential missteps or mistakes you saw in the structure of Architecture for Humanity as it prior existed? And what can you do going forward to kind of avoid making those same mistakes of the past? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think Architecture for Humanity operated, you know, very much as a kind of humanitarian design firm. You know, they were very project oriented. And, you know, a lot of the funding was just for specific projects and efforts. And I think we need to do a much better job at creating pipelines for leadership, for teaching people the skills, for letting them develop the skills through experimentation and through execution of real projects. And then acting as a, a functioning network, you know, moving from groups of really what it was was isolated chapters around the world that kind of did their own thing. And the old headquarters largely kind of ignored them, didn't really resource the development of the network, you know, really put much attention or energy into it. I was the first person that was hired full time to run the chapter network or to, you know, help coordinate the network. And that was after they had existed for 10 years. So you can kind of see how they prioritized it. And now that the focus is on the development of local groups and building the skills of local practitioners to do, you know, work for communities in, in need, it's, it's a whole different organizational structure. It's more of, a, of an educational organization with a huge component of community organizing and amplification of the work that's on the ground. I think that some of the big successes in the, the Code for America Brigade program are that they communicate so much with one another and they share resources. And it's much different in the technology world because when you write a program and it's open source, someone can just like copy it and you know redeploy it for their own city. So it's a lot different. It's a lot more immediate. But I think that we can start sharing those prophecies and stories just as well. And that'll really start getting us to be able to understand what works and what doesn't for what types of communities, for what types of environments, you know, socioeconomically, environmentally, you know, culturally, like what works where. And we can start looking at those things on a global scale. And and I think that's really the role of this new umbrella organization is to learn from what's happening on the ground. You know, I'm a big believer that, you know, whenever we, we have struggles in our societies, like the people that feel it the hardest are 
those that are underserved in the urban areas. And, and that's who we have to understand the implications of the policies that we pass from, because they're the ones that are going to feel it the hardest. And so that's really what the focus of, of our you know, chapters is doing, is, is figuring out what's really needed as we develop our, our cities and as people are moving more into cities and, and rural areas as well. There's some chapters in more rural areas, but it's, it's really just identifying and listening to what people need and then figuring out how to, how to see if design can even play a role in helping. You spoke before about the technological approach to bettering the systems by which government operates um, through Code for America and such, and how that kind of perhaps chafed or, or just wasn't as automatically the same way of thinking as an architect might approach the problem from their perspective, even if the problem isn't specifically analogous, but just to say that there's a certain way of going about things if you're trying to sell someone a piece of code that is very different from the way you would go about things if you're trying to sell them on a design. And I wanted to ask you specifically about your own past as an architect. Um, you went to Tulane, studied architecture, um, and were there during Hurricane Katrina in the aftermath. And I'm wondering what in your architecture education and afterwards did you kind of identify as the the frustrating points of working as an architect that made you maybe want to switch more over into this level of community organizing and working with technological solutions and that kind of uh, engagement with policy? Well, I mean, I moved to New Orleans like three days before Katrina, and that was my wake up to, you know, independence and the architectural career that I went down. And so it was a really special moment. I mean, it was a terrible moment, very traumatic moment, but in just kind of one's formidable years, it was incredible because I, you know, in New Orleans, you, you kind of, you get a sense of community and neighborhood that uh, doesn't, that I haven't found in any other city in the country yet. And that was really special to me. And, you know, like being able to, I lived in mid city for a couple of years and being able to like ride my bike anywhere in the city and kind of come home and I would, I would dismount my bike and, I'd walk on my block and I would just say hi to like five or six of my neighbors and everyone would be outside and we'd talk and, and every once in a while I'd be like, who's cooking dinner tonight? And you just kind of invite people in. And that, that sense of, of community and belonging, I, I haven't really felt anywhere else in the state. And that was a huge part of, of me kind of understanding what, what design could and should be. And it was really about just developing relationships with people. And, you know, our, our, our Tulane University had uh, some great programs. They had uh, the, the city center, which still exists now and is, is growing. And, and that really enabled me to do a lot of community design build projects and really interact with business owners in different ways and really understand what they needed and work with real clients really early on. But in a context of, you know, the city being flooded because the federal levies didn't hold up because, you know, they were under-resourced. So really, I got to understand a lot of the, you know, resource allocation implications of the built environment, you know, of, of how policy affects where people live and, and how they live and how safe they are. And so that really caused me to question a lot of the basic assumptions that we just have, you know, going through architecture school is that you, you learn how to draw, how to be a visionary, how to kind of work on your own, how to think through ideas and put things in context and do research. It's all well and done, but in the end, you don't ever work with clients in a real situation. And I think being in New Orleans and being at Tulane enabled me to actually do that a little bit more and, and actually build things. 
And then kind of, I could go back, you know, every few months I could ride by the school where we built, you know, a play structure and see how kids were like weaving string in between some of the things we did and really just understand how people were using what we built. And that was just an incredible introduction to design. And so naturally when I finished school or when I, you know, would do some internships over the summers and just sit in an office and draft and be totally disconnected from, you know, the real strong effects of design or, you know, where the decisions were being made seemed to be so far away because I was sitting and I was drafting and, and it was a project where, you know, a developer had already decided what they were going to, what they were going to build. And we were kind of way downstream in the process. And I think that we do have insight and knowledge about how things get built in this world to, to, to have more of a, an impact earlier on in those decisions. And so I, I think I realized that being in New Orleans after the storm and being in traditional practice is just like, well, all the interesting decisions were already made. And all the kind of conflicting conversations seem to have already been had by the time that, you know, the project got to our desk. And so I was really never satisfied at a firm because the project just honestly didn't seem relevant to me. And I also, I, I worked as a set designer for a while. So that was a whole nother wild world where you're building, you know, entire buildings in a warehouse that just get thrown away afterwards. So that was a pretty sad experience of incredible waste. But I think one of the most powerful experiences that I had in New Orleans was teaching this after-school program to high school and middle school students from schools all around the city, architecture and design. And that was really profound. You know, I, I picked the kids up at their houses, I met their families, and we got to spend the weekends together kind of, you know, designing one project together. And that went so counter to everything that we had done in school. And it really shaped my idea of participation and co-creation. And, you know, working with those kids really solidified my passion for it because, you know, watching them present their work and hearing them talk about how excited they were about the model that they all built together like that was, that was a special moment. And I think, you know, they really took ownership of it. And I think that's what, you know, design can really do, but it has to be that participatory process. And, and, so that's a very long-winded way of saying, you know, the city and the education at the time after Katrina really shaped, you know, my approach to design and the, just the physical world in general. So do you imagine at a later date, maybe sometime in the future, and it wouldn't have to be necessarily when you are involved with the chapter network if you decide to leave at any point, but do you imagine that then one goal of the organization would be to be involved more at the level of architecture school, kind of to address the the things you just brought up of what's kind of lacking in architecture education? Yes. I think that we'll definitely have to figure out how to develop student chapters, you know, looking at, and there are a lot of schools that are moving in this direction. There are, there's, and uh, you know, the field has changed tremendously in the past 15 years. You know, there's a lot more practitioners that are trying hybrid models that are working with more of direct impact missions. And so it's about, you know, amplifying their voices as well and disseminating their lessons learned and, and acknowledging that they're doing incredible work as well. And so I think we have to do the same thing with educational and academic organizations. And it's, you know, I think it's really going to be interesting in the next 10 years or so how the architecture academic world kind of shift to the needs of and the interests of their students. Because so many students, I think it was like like 2,000 people a year signed up 
for the Ditch After Network when you know the, the old website was still up. And yes, they had an incredible, incredibly well-known brand, and we'll have to build that back up. But you know, it just shows you that so many people were interested in this type of work, and you know, educational organizations really just need to shift and understand that you know our way of practice needs to shift because the way that we're taking in information, the way that we're working with one another in close quarters, in, you know, dense cities is changing. And so we have to change the process by which we deliver our services as well. And I think, you know, taking model, like taking models from Engineers Without Borders that have professional chapters as well as student chapters, and they can really see, the schools really see the benefit of their students joining, you know, an EWB chapter because they become much more well-rounded professionals. And I think we need to be able to show the same thing and provide the same support, you know, within an academic setting. The one thing that I will say is a little difficult is that, you know, students tend to leave the cities that they go to school in. And this is not, you know, this is not the case for all all academic institutions for sure. And especially, you know, at the community college level, which is where I think I'm personally more interested in getting involved is because people stay, you know, where they're in school. And when you're doing community work, it's really about building relationships with the groups that you're working with and and sustaining them long-term. And so finding ways to do that in academic settings where people are staying in the cities that they're building relationships in is, is really important. So to round things off, can you give me a loose idea of what the most pressing concerns are for the organization right now and what your plans are for the immediate future? What is what is the number one thing you're going to try to address right now? Well, my marching orders to myself for the first two months is two or, two or three months is to set up the leadership. So put the team in place, you know, the board of directors, the regional leaders council, making sure that the processes of communication and decision-making are in place so that even, you know, if there's no more funds raised after the seed funding from Curry Stone, that the organization can continue as, a, you know, a volunteer network. There's no reason that it's not going to continue as we have seen, you know, the, the bankruptcy of headquarters, you know, affected it, but in a way strengthened it as well. You know, that's so my concerns are getting the leadership uh, recruited and in place and making sure that the decision-making processes are, you know, set and then, you know, figuring out how to identify programs and initiatives to really launch this into something that, you know, can benefit the profession and, and in the end, you know, the communities of our cities. And so figuring out how to identify those needs and turn them into programs is really, you know, as soon as we launch the organization at the beginning of March, I'm going to turn around and go straight into that as well as, you know, fundraising to help us build capacity to do that so that we can properly identify the right programs that, you know, will help skill up our numbers. Those are my couple priorities for the next six months. And then, you know, in a lean, agile way, we'll, we'll figure out what the priorities are when we get about six months down the road and and move on from there. One step at a time. Well, we definitely are really excited to know that the basic tenets and ideas and goals of Architecture for Humanity are going to be continued onward and that there will be a place where people who are still interested in doing this type of work can join and get involved. So Garrett, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and what's happening with the Chapter Network. Of course, Amelia, thanks for covering it. It's uh, going to be an exciting road ahead. Thanks for listening to Archonnect Sessions one-to-one with Garrett Jacobs. Danny Lavoinov edits the podcast, and Matt Skillings composed the music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of one-to-one. New episodes come out every Monday. Make sure to not miss an episode by subscribing to us on iTunes 
And if you like the podcast, please consider leaving us a review. You can keep up with podcasting news from ArcConnect on Twitter through at ArcSessions or hashtag ArcConnectSessions, or you can email us through connect at ArcConnect.com. Thanks again for listening to One to One with Garrett Jacobs.